I want to welcome you to this presentation of what I what we know would normally be the light of life communications of the pulpit ministry of the Receiver Boulevard Church, but this is prepared uh, as a workshop presentation for the ISCAR conference uh, hosted by the Stonecrest Church of Christ. I want to express my appreciation to the host, Dr. Richard Barclay, my colleague and friend uh, of long standing. Uh, for inviting me to make a contribution to the theme of this conference, which is uh, from COVID to a caring church. And let me uh, comment upon uh, the relevance of this conference. And I'm very sensitive and appreciative to Dr. Barclay and those who were the architects of this conference to be sensitive to the fact that the church, uh, in coming out of this post, this pandemic, circumstance uh, stands on a precipice. Uh, before we went into the pandemic, the church was on the precipice of literally serious decline. And in coming out, we have to learn the lessons of what God was doing and be sensitive and discerning of what God was doing and what God had been summoning the church to, uh, because we're now on the precipice of either serious decline or literally uh, really profound growth. And I believe that we can take advantage of what God is do doing and what God has done uh, in terms of resetting uh, the ministry of the church. I'm not talking about restarting. That's not what God calls us to do, but to reset the ministry and not only reset the ministry of the church, but to recenter the theology of the church. And I appreciate this assignment that has been given to me because, because it has to do with a theological foundation that is, that is vitally important uh, to going forward as a congregation that we really understand the essential pillars of the Christian faith, what it means to follow Jesus um, as the Lord of the church, what it means to follow Jesus as our savior. Those are two foundational pillars of the church. This assignment that I've been, I have been given uh, to give an expository of John 3 verses 1 19, uh, which is literally a dialogue and a discourse on the new birth. Uh, I want to um, first of all explain the task uh, of this particular assignment uh, to give an expository rendering of the text. Now, Expository rendering is to be distinguished from what would be considered a topical message or a topical sermon or a topical lesson. Uh, that is simply a lesson that is theme driven around particular around particular passages. That is, you, you select a topic and then you select passages from various places to support that that theme or that topic. Now, that's topical. And, uh, and there's nothing wrong with it. I used to be very critical of topical preaching, uh, but I have learned better. Uh, there can be nothing wrong with topical preaching as long as it is doctrinally, doctrinally consistent uh, and in harmony with the overall narrative of Scripture. Uh, and what feeds into that lesson uh, is simply the teachings of the Christian faith, uh, teachings of the Bible. The second uh, distinction is expository rendering is different from what we would consider a textual sermon or a textual lesson. Now, textuals usually refer to an exegetical presentation of a smaller passage of scripture, such as three to five verses, and you take the points from those three to five verses, and that would be considered a textual or uh, an exegetical uh, message or sermon or, or lesson. Now, 
Expository simply means when you take a larger passage of scripture and it kind of, someone would almost consider it like a running commentary. We're not doing a running commentary. You know, we're, we're, we're going to be put, pulling out uh, principles, you know, upon which uh, the text is built uh, as we help you to understand, you know, the literary uh, genre of the gospels. But let me first give a definition of expository. John Stout, I think, was good and on point when he made the statement that the expositor opens what appears to be closed, makes plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted, and unfolds what is tightly packed. I like that, I like that description. And then there's another that I favor. Uh, it would be considered one, uh, one by uh, Tim Keller. Uh, who said expository preaching, it, it grounds the message in the text so that the sermon points are the points of the text. And it majors in the major ideas of the text. And so that's what we're going to be doing as we deal with uh, this message on uh, the new birth. Uh, and this narrative on the new birth. Now, the assigned subject that has been given to me is literally an exposition of the new birth narrative of John, the third chapter. Now, before we do this, I, it is also necessary in the land with doing expository re re rendering uh, is to uh, make some textual observations that are important, you know, in approaching this text. First of all, you need to understand that gospels Gospel material, the gospels as documents, uh, are sermonic in character and not biographical. Many times we think that these are bi biographies of the life of Christ, but they are not intended to be biographies. As a matter of fact, uh, the gospel writers were sermonizers. They were preachers that ba basically were building a message around particular theme. Now, if you talk about being topical, that's exactly what uh, these guys were doing is topical renderings of the good news of, about Jesus Christ. And of course, John, in his, in his rendering of the gospel, uh, selected the theme of the deity of Christ, and he selected materials from the life and teachings of Christ. Now, these materials could be known as pericopes. You know, many times uh, we use the word pericope. I hear preachers often using the term pericope, and they're using it you know, in inappropriate ways, because the word pericope is literally associated with form criticism, and form criticism is a discipline associated only with the gospel materials. Uh, so when you use when they use the word pericope, they're just talking about strips or cuts of of materials such as a parable. You know, these these are materials that circulated independently, and these guys would use these various uh, cuts out of the teachings and ministry of Christ uh, that centered in their particular theme. And so therefore, uh, the word pericope would not apply to the book of Romans. Somebody said, let's go to the pericope of Romans 12. You know, they're misusing that and they, they really don't understand what they're, you know, what they're presenting because Romans is not a redacted uh, document. It is not a compilation of several different uh, sayings of Paul or anybody else, uh, it, it came the way it is presented. And so the point is, uh, these were biography, these were not biographies, but they were sermons. Uh, they were written, and then they, we need to note that they were written 
after the church was established. They were placed in front, you know, of the corpus of New Testament writings uh, only to set the foundation, the theological foundations upon which the church and his ministry and mission was established. But these were written, uh, these documents were written late in the New Testament era, uh, but they served to give the church a foundational understanding of uh, uh, apostolic writings uh, and what these writings were grounded in, and that is the life teachings and ministry of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, so they were just simply pray, placed up front, but they did not come before the book of Acts. You know, some people think that Matthew came before the book of Acts. No, it did not. Uh, Matthew came, as a matter of fact, Matthew one, was one of the latest gospels, you know, that was written. This, the second thing that we want to consider before entering into this, and that is that uh, the Gospels represent what is called narrative theology. That is the gospel message presented in story form. In every one of these stories, there, there are implicit principles of the Christian faith that has to be made explicit by the expositor. You know, the one who is teaching, you know, this message uh, has to be able to identify what is uh, implied, make explicit what is implied in the story as it relates to what it is intended to convey about the Christian faith. And that's what we're going to be doing uh, with this narrative. You're going to see that uh, this narrative of John 3 is literally about the principle of what it means to be saved by grace through faith. Uh, and uh, it's important for you to understand that the story is built around that that soteriology, don't, don't, don't mind if I use that term. It is built around that teaching about salvation. And therefore, we have to understand there is an intent in using the character that is being used. There is an intent in bringing out the sayings of Christ as it relates to this particular issue. And so gospel writers were sermonizers. Their message is thematically constructed. And then finally, understand that the literary practice uh, that is utilized in by this writer is a principle. It is a practice of intensification for the purpose of clarity. Now, what uh, intensification simply means is that often Christ uh, would take a particular issue to its extreme example to make clear what the message is about it. For example, when there was a group of people who came to Christ, you know, and wanted to ask him his take, uh, his, his understanding of tragedy as it relates to the will of God, uh, God, the sovereignty of God. And so they say, what about this 18, these 18 men that was working on a tower and it fell and all of them were, all of them were slain. Uh, and before Christ answered the question uh, of just his rendering of a tragic event, he intensified the issue. You know, he made the issue. And notice the question he raised when they brought that up. They were, were these men worse sinners than everybody else? Does such a thing happen to them? And Christ said, except you repent, you know, the same thing can happen. But then he gave a more intense 
example. He said, what about the 20,000 Jews that were worshiping in the temple, you know, and the army fell upon them and mingled their blood with their sacrifices. So what he's using now is a religious example, you know, of people that are actually worshiping God and such a tragic thing happens to them. So he intensifies to make sure that they understand the principles in his answer, uh, that those principles are clear in terms of uh, how he would respond to this event. And what we have in this dialogue is the same thing. You know, we're going to have a story about salvation, but there's an intensification principle here because the, the character that Jesus is going to be dialoguing with is a person of extreme moral achievements. Now, keep in mind, this is about the meaning of salvation by grace through faith. And so Christ uses, or John uses an example of a conversation with a man who was at the height of human achievement and moral accomplishment to illustrate the message of you can't be saved by works. You can't be saved by human merit. And so the point is, uh, let's look at this. So the dialogue, we're going to start with the dialogue, and then I'm going to give just as much attention to not just the dialogue, but I want you to understand uh, the discourse that followed this particular dialogue. Now, the dialogue is uh, begins with Nicodemus, and he comes to Jesus out of the feast in Jerusalem. John, uh, you you read the background to the text. You just can't start with John three and verse one. If you get, the context is the feast uh, event, the Passover event that took place in Jerusalem where Nicodemus observed Jesus in terms of his, uh, of his miracles and those things that were performed. In John 3, 23 and 25 through 25, the Bible says now he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. During the feast, many believers in, many believed in his name when they, notice, when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Now, uh, it is unfortunate that the text, uh, that, that publishers of the text break it at this point and put chapter three, you know, but literally it is at that context uh, where the statement comes, and there was a man of the Pharisees who came to Jesus by night. You know, and of course, Nicodemus is simply being presented as an example of a man whose heart the Lord read. The Bible says in verse 25 of chapter 2 that he knew what was in man. And then comes Nicodemus, and Jesus interrupts him when he comes with those accolades and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, the aim of the text, quite naturally, uh, the object of which is the object of John's narrative is to reveal what we would not naturally understand uh, about salvation and its requirements. This is this is you can't guess about this. Revelation is necessary, you know, for one to really understand the new birth. And so the message is about what it means to be saved by grace 
through faith. Now, the concept of grace through faith is well established because keep in mind, you know, the Pauline mission is completed. Gentiles have been introduced into the faith and Paul is, has already defended his position about salvation is by grace through faith uh, without the necessity of ceremonial practices or the keeping of the Ten Commandment law, you know, as an additional requirement. You know, Paul have already dealt with those arguments, but now John is writing his gospel concerning the deity of Christ and he laying that foundation because keep in mind, salvation is rooted in faith that embraces uh, Jesus as God. In other words, faith whose object is Jesus as Lord, Jesus as God in a human body. And so the message is an explanation or the narrative is an explanation of what it means to be saved by grace through faith. Now, there are three aspects to the dialogue. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about a dialogue that took place in the first 11 verses. And then in verses 12 uh, through 19, there is a discourse where Christ explains, uh, we might say John through uh, the ministry of Christ and the words of Christ and the message of Christ. He explains uh, what this conversation with Nicodemus really was all about. And so the aspects of the narrative is this. First, there's the illustration. There's the example, you know, of the one who salvation would apply to. And then there's the insight into the salvific requirements. And then there's the indictment, you know, concerning uh, this man of high achievement, high moral and spiritual and religious achievement, you know, who didn't know the basic things about God's will, you know, and all of that's important to understand in John's rendering of the message of salvation, you know, on the basis of, of grace through faith. Now notice the example. So we begin with the dialogue in John 3, the conversation with the religious leader. Here's the example, verse one. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now what this does, what the first part of this narrative does, it answers the question to whom is salvation applicable? You know, the man who resorted to Jesus, notice in the text, was a Pharisee. That is a member of a religious sectarian group with noble intentions. The, the, the Pharisees, by the time of Christ, had developed a very bad name, you know, but this was literally a group that was orthodox. They really believed uh, in upholding the high standards of the law. And that's where the problem within uh, came in because they started drawing circles around the law to protect you know, the practice of the keeping of the law and these these traditions that they established as a means of keeping the law uh, start interfering, you know, with that that uh, intent. So the two basic problems with sectarian religion, as we see, provides an intensification. I notice this provides an intensification of the issue. Why this man as a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, is an intensification uh, in terms of helping one to understand who salvation, uh, who is actually in need of salvation. So if he had, you know, uh, been having a conversation with a bum off the street, you know, then uh, people could easily draw the conclusion, yes, I can see why this man would actually need salvation. But no, John doesn't use a bum off the street. He doesn't use an ordinary character. He comes to Jesus with a Pharisee, someone who had a high regard, you know, for the word of God, uh, for the law of God, had a high regard, you know, for moral stature and moral standing, a member of the, San, uh, a member of the Sanhedrin, 
Sanhedrin, you know, that is, he was one of 70 men, you know, that was leading uh, religiously the Jewish community, uh, community. And so we see he was a Pharisee. And we see the problem associated in the background here with, uh, with religious traditions, which is oral traditions, you know, associated with Phariseeism, which often neglected the commandments of God, uh, according to Matthew 15 and verse 6, the Bible said these traditions literally uh, negated the commandments. He said, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And then uh, Phariseeism also represented what would be uh, known even today as religious legalism. And legalism comes in two forms. You know, now I know, uh, you know, I don't want to deal with the, you know, the traditions as it relates, you know, to ultra conservatism versus, you know, uh, progressive libertinism. I'm not, I'm not going to deal with that. But uh, basically, legalism, there's a authoritative, that's what is called authoritative legalism, which is a strict adherence to the letter of the law without any regard to the spirit of the law. You know, that's, we want to stay basically with the biblical idea associated with the abuse uh, of teachings concerning the law. And that is, first would be authoritative legalism. And then there's, there's something called moralism, moral legalism, you know, that Paul and other religious leaders were often confronted with. And that is relying upon human goodness without regard for divine requirements. You know, relying upon human goodness without regard for divine requirements. Now, the second thing about uh, Nicodemus is that he was a ruler of the Jews a ruler of the Jews, that, it, that reveals his religious and social standing. He was, uh, he was an intelligent man of social status, one with a natural degree of moral and spiritual and social pride. You know, that's who he was. He was a person of high moral achievement. He was an elder in the Jewish faith. So who is in need of salvation? Such a man as this religious in character, godly in commitment, you know, and socially high on the, on, on the uh, status pole. Now, the second aspect of this text has to do with the sensuality of the new birth. Utilizing this example, uh, Jesus is saying to this man, even to this person, the new birth, a new birth is essential. In contrast, the first is a contrast to the natural phenomena. The new birth is uh, the new birth is being born from above, uh, you know, versus uh, birth that comes from beneath. He is saying a person must be born from above. That's the idea. That's the language, you know, of the text. Jesus answered and, and said to him, you know, most surely I say unto you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so what is the essentiality of the new birth? You know, without being affected, that is, he is saying, without being affected from above, that is God's intervention, God's revelation, God's unveiling of himself, you know, to humankind. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how intelligent you are, how moral you are. He is saying without being affected from above, you cannot perceive, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't, you don't understand the rule of God, you know, in the hearts of man, you know, without being affected from above. That's what verse three is about. 
And so uh, understand that, that Nicodemus, in terms of his present view of the kingdom, it was a political, his idea of the kingdom was political, you know, but in this uh, text, Jesus is saying the kingdom, entering the kingdom, salvation and the kingdom is one and the same. You cannot, you cannot separate being saved from the idea of the kingdom. There's much, you know, that can be said about that. In Romans 14 and verse 17, the Bible said the kingdom of God is not in externals, uh, but it is in righteousness, a right relationship with God in peace. That is a right relationship with others, a, a relationship that God establishes for you with others. And then he says, and in the joy of the Holy Ghost. And so the point is, there's no separation uh, of the kingdom of God and salvation. Acts 2 and verse 47 says this. It says that God adds all those that should be saved. The Lord was adding those that should be saved to the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, uh, Paul said, for by one spirit are we all baptized into the body. So the end result of salvation is citizenship in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ. One cannot claim to be saved and not a member and not associated, you know, with the rule of God, with the kingdom of God, uh, with the family of God, uh, with what is called the body of Christ. That is the physical presence of Christ upon the earth is the idea of the body of Christ. And then the second thing you see in this text is the requirements for the new birth, the requirements for the new birth. One must be born of water and spirit. No, he said to Nicodemus, how can, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now this is one of the most debated religious questions uh, of today, not just today, but even of yesterday. And that is what must one do to be saved? Now there are several religious views. There's, uh, and I don't mind calling out this because there's what is called the Pentecostal view. They see a contrast in this text between physical and spiritual birth. You know, that is Holy Spirit baptism. You know, and so the point is, uh, they are looking at physical birth on one hand and Holy Ghost birth, or Holy Spirit, you know, birth on the other hand, when the Lord says water and spirit. And then there's the faith only view, which says uh, water, which views water as a symbol of the word, you know. And the problem with this view, when Christ said man must be born of water and spirit, you know, the problem quite naturally is redundancy. The Bible teaches that a person is saved uh, when the Holy Spirit plants the word of God, the Bible says you are saved uh, not by corruptible seed, but by the incorruptible seed. You purify your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit, uh, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but the incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. You know, and then in Ephesians 5, 26, the Bible said by the washing of water by the word. Sanct God sanctifies us through the washing of water by the word or through the word. So the point is uh, the faith only view that looks at water as a symbol of the word, uh, that prob the problem with that view is would be considered redundancy. The proper reading of the text is this, water and spirit are two dimensions of salvation uh, that's required, you know, in every, 
In every example of conversion, you're going to see that two dimensions there. The human side, that is faith responding to God. God never gives us a faith challenge without there being a physical expression of that. You know, and that's what water, when a person submits themselves to be baptized in water, that's the human side. That is our response, you know, to what God requires. And then the divine side is God's transformation, the, the divine transformation, God infusing himself into the character of faith and making that response acceptable uh, or valid, you know, and that is when uh, a person responds to the gospel, God, uh, they respond with obedient faith and God respond by infusing them and giving them not only forgiveness of sins, but the Bible said the gift of his spirit. You know, the contrast uh, in verses six to nine, six and eight, is a contrast to the new birth. You know, that is, it is not human. It is, the contrast is between human achievement and divine accomplishment. Notice in verse six, he said, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That is what you can do as a result of your humanness is humanness. And he said, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And so the point is uh, that, uh, the new birth is not simply something that you can humanly achieve, such as behavioral modification. The new birth is something that the spirit accomplishes, which is behavioral transformation. And many people uh, through human programs can uh, get their behavior modified. Same old person, just a modified, you know, approach, you know, to their behavior. But Christ offers behavioral transformation. And of course, the evidence in this text, he said the evidence of the new birth is not by externals, but by the effects. How do you know if a person has been born again? And that would be by its effects. You know, there are many passages in the Bible talks about the evidences, you know, of salvation. And there are three virtues in scripture uh, that is often used when that question of that issue comes up, and that is faith, hope, and love. Paul says, when I heard of your faith in the Lord and uh, the hope of the love that you have toward all the saints, the hope that you have toward heaven, he said, then I begin to pray for you. So is that triad of Christian virtues that evidences the new birth? It's not the simply, it's not simply being baptized. A person can be baptized uh, and God not honor you know, that obedience simply because the heart is not right. The Bible said a person has to obey from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered. And then Jesus closes the conversation by exposing uh, the fact that although this character uh, is of high human achievement, uh, he has natural limitations. In verses 9 and 10, he says, most assuredly I say to you, we speak that which we know and testify that which we have seen, and you would not receive our witness. Now what he's saying is, you may climb up, but there is no getting out of your natural box. He said, no man has ascended up. You know, uh, only he who is up there has come down. And so the point is, the only way that we can know anything about God is that God have chosen through his sovereignty to reveal himself. And so one may climb up as high as you might go uh, in this natural arena, but you can't get out of the box. And that's what he was saying to Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and responded to him, are you a master teacher of Israel? 
and do not know these things? How is it that you can be a master teacher and don't know the simple things, you know, about salvation and the kingdom? And that simply evidences the fact that God has to invade your box. God has to, you have to receive divine revelation in order to understand, you know, these things pertaining to the kingdom. So now we want to transition and deal with in the latter part of this, we want to transition now to deal with the discourse uh, on the new birth, the discourse on the new birth. And that is beginning with verse 11 and 12. Now, the problem, now notice in verse 11 and 12, what Christ comes out of as he, as he has been engaged in this conversation with Nicodemus, and then he exposes the fact that a natural man cannot know the things of the Spirit of God unless God reveals him. That's the principle that's involved in verses uh, 9 and 10. You know, Nicodemus, with all of this education, you know, the things that I'm telling you, you have no knowledge of. And what he's simply saying uh, is that is an issue that has to be addressed when we talk about salvation, when we talk about the new birth. And that is verse 11 and 12. And this is where we get into what is called the problem with unbelief. The problem with unbelief. Many times, uh, because keep in mind, salvation is for the believer. Uh, but there are limitations that humanity uh, is under that even makes coming to faith uh, a result of divine initiative. And we need to understand this. Now notice what is the problem uh, with unbelief? First of all, the character of unbelief is in verse seven. I'm sorry, verse 11, where Jesus said, verily I say unto you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, you, uh, yet you do not receive our testimony. I want you to underline this phrase, yet you do not receive our testimony. Understand this, unbelief, if you don't remember anything about this, about this session, know this, that unbelief is not ignorance. Unbelief is simply the unwillingness to receive, the unwillingness to receive. Many times when we assume that unbelief is ignorance, we think that to save the unbeliever, all we have to do is get him a track, or get him to watch the right program, or get him to write, watch the right preacher, and we are underestimating uh, the real problem. The real problem with unbelief is not ignorance, but the unwillingness to receive. Ignorance then is a consequence, and consequence of the unwillingness to receive, or what would also be characterized as rebellion. Unbelief is rebellion against God. You know, so its consequence is ignorance and uh, ignorance about God, ignorance about his kingdom. Verses 12, he said, if I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can I how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? See, the point is we try to get people to receive heavenly things uh, if they have not yet come to a disposition where they are willing to receive. That's the very foundation of faith is that when a person comes to God, they first must accept uh, the fact that God exists, not just that God exists, but the Bible said, but that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He's not defining saving faith. He's, design, he's defining what natural faith, what is the foundation of saving faith, and that is belief in God, and not only belief in God, but recognizing the goodness of God. And then so uh, 
The problem of unbelief, number one, is in his character, unwilling to receive, in his consequence, that is ignorance about God, and then it's confinement. And that is when you are in unbelief, you literally are confined to the natural. Verse 13, no one, notice he says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of God. You don't rise up out of the, the natural box. You can't, you can't uh, surface from uh, being natural through intellectualism or through education or through moral achievements, you know, to know anything about God that's necessary, you know, for your transformation. Uh, it takes God to come down, to condescend, to become human, you know, in order for you uh, to reveal to you what you need to know about God. So naturally, there's a confinement. And what unbelief does, it confines the person that is in need of salvation to the natural. And then what is the remedy for unbelief? And, and this is why when we don't under, when we think unbelief is just about ignorance, uh, we are undermining and underestimating uh, the true nature of the problem. And when we underestimate the true nature of the problem, we're not going to take the necessary measures in resolving the problem. Notice God uses two things uh, in the resolution of unbelief that we're going to see implicit in this text. The remedy for unbelief, verses 14 to 18, verses, uh, first it said God sends a sign. He's using the example of the Israelites in terms of their rebellion against God in the wilderness. Uh, the Bible said God said poison of snakes. And what were the poison of snakes? Verse 14 said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, the snakes were a necessary sign. Uh, it helps to identify sin. When a person is in sin, they're literally snake bitten. <laughs> you have to understand that. And sin, in other words, sin came first. They were murmuring. They were complaining. Sin needs to be identified for what it is. And that is, it is poison. You know, it, it, it causes blindness. It causes, it is rebellion against God. And so God sent them signs to, that was a, simply a temporary sign because snakes crawl in, they, they crawl into the camp, uh, and they crawl out. You know, snakes brought the snakes, that is the signs that God used in terms of, of raising up the serpent in the wilderness by Moses. The, the sign was to help them understand, you know, the nature of the problem. And it was the recognition of sin and the snake and being snake bitten and dying of poison. And the only remedy would be faith in God. And, and, and so that's what God does even before the preacher ever gets to you uh, as an unbeliever. He gives you signs. And those signs are designed to help you understand your real condition, help you understand your rebellion against God, help you understand that the only remedy, the only solution that one has uh, is by turning toward God in faith. And then the second aspect of dealing with the unbeliever is that God sent his son. You know, that's why the Bible said through mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. And then out of the field of the Lord, men turn from evil. So the parallel is in, in verse 16. It said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. 
You know, and so God sent the son because of his love for the world. You know, first God raised the snake. He sent the sign. And when one really recognized that they're snake bitten, then God brings the truth. You know, so it takes two things to deal with the the, the disposition of rebellion, the disposition of unbelief, which is the refusal to receive. It first takes the mercy of God, and once the mercy of God has its proper effect, then the truth of God. That mercy can come through providence, or it can be exhibited, it can be exhibited through people, the people of God. But God uses mercy as a means of transforming the heart you know, of the unbeliever from rebellion to receiving. And so the point is, the Bible said God so loved the world. Uh, and then God sent his son not for condemnation. You know, that's another issue that the church has got to get, get a hold, get a, get a grip on. You know, as we come out of this post-pandemic to do what God really has sent us to do. You know, it is not our job to condemn the world, but the Bible says the world is already condemned. You don't have to tell a condemned person that they're condemned. You know, uh, God is capable of doing that through his mercy. God is capable of, of accomplishing that through providence. But the Bible says God didn't send Christ, you know, for condemnation. That's the law came for condemnation, but Christ came God sent his son for salvation. In verse 17, it says, indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And so the son, just as the serpent was lifted up, you know, for a perishing a uh, generation of people to see, perishing unbelievers to see, perishing rebellion, uh, re uh, the rebellious to see, the son, the Bible said, must be lifted. That is the word must be lifted up as well. The perishing world have to see uh, the word of God manifested in the person uh, and message of Jesus Christ. And then we see the latter part of this text, which is the reason uh, why people are in unbelief? What are the reasons and the rationale behind unbelief? We need to understand that if we're going to be effective in mission, if we're going to be effective in ministering to a lost world. And that is number one. And this is why you have to understand unbelief as rebellion is because number one, uh, when you just bring the truth, understand this, light brings judgment. You know, that is, it brings decision. You know, uh, in verse 19, the Bible said, this is the judgment that light is coming to the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. There, there's rationale when people reject truth. That's why mercy has to precede uh, the revelation of the word. Uh, and then verse 20 says, unbelievers hate truth. And why is this? Notice the text says, for all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may be not exposed, may not be exposed. People don't want their deeds exposed. People know what their situation is. And friends, the point is, it's necessary, as Jesus said, to go make friends with sinners, you know, because they have to want to, they have to win, they have to have the willingness to receive. And then uh, the Bible says, so the first reason for unbelief is that light brings judgment. The second thing, that is, it brings about the need to make a decision, you know, and people don't want to make that decision. They'd rather be in the dark, you know, because light brings decision, uh, the point of decision. And then the second thing is unbelief hate truth because they do not want 
their deeds to be exposed. And then the third uh, principle is unbelief is a cover for sin. It's a cover for sin. The Bible said those who uh, do not want, uh, uh, but those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. And, and, and you have to understand, if you understand this properly, you'll understand why it is, uh, uh, why we often get the results that we get when it comes to gospel meetings and inviting people, you know, because we have not done the proper work that's necessary in order to attract an unbelieving world. You know, that is cater, you know, to that, that, that heart, cater to that sensitivity, show the mercy of God, show the love of God. And friends, when we show the love of God, uh, then we overcome, uh, we overcome those obstacles of not wanting, you know, people not wanting to come to decision. People have to want to be with you, want to follow you, want to follow after church. And it is the mercy of God, you know, that brings that about. May God bless you in this endeavor. May your uh, the remaining seminars that you attend be profitable to you. I uh, hope I have done an adequate job in not only explaining the principles of the new birth that was in the dialogue, uh, but the explanation of those principles in the discourse of Christ in verses 11 to 21. May God bless you.